peşli on peşli tokat yolları taşlı on peşli Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson. I'm thrilled to be here today in San Antonio, Texas, with a group of historians of children and youth in the Middle East. We have a kind of different episode for you today in that we're going to have a roundtable with a group of scholars who have some shared research interests, and we also hope some debates about the history of children and youth in the Middle East. Um, we have today with us Murat Yildiz of Skidmore College. Dylan Bond of the University of Alabama, Huntsville, and Heidi Morrison at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So first, I'll just ask our three participants to go around and introduce, very briefly introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about their research. My name is Dylan Bond, and I work on the history of youth politics in Lebanon in the mid-20th century. My name is Heidi Morrison, and I work on the history of childhood in 20th century Egypt and also oral histories of children in Palestine. My name is Murat Yildiz, and I'm a historian of uh, sports and physical culture in late Ottoman Istanbul. So we're thrilled to have this group of scholars here to talk about what is, uh, you know, it's a sort of epistemological question, it's a methodological question, um, which is sort of how do we think about young people, children, and age as a category of analysis in the modern Middle East and its history. So the first question, and I want to get right to the heart of the matter, what is it that's important about studying the history of children and youth in the modern Middle East? I think that most people think that they're not historians of childhood and youth, but in, a, in fact, there's no way to avoid including children and youth in historical analysis because they constitute as much as 50% of the population, or presently, I think demographers are saying there's up to sometimes up to 75% in the Gulf are children and youth. So they're there, they're active, they're alive, they're part of um, society. And then um, beyond that, you can learn a lot about history through children and youth because they speak to larger topics like political movements, issues in society, issues in culture. Um, you can look at how children are raised, how they're disciplined. Um, how the people deal with children who break rules, and also what children think of all that. And they can give you an insight into already studied topics that you haven't um, looked at, but from a different perspective. And it also pulls us away from a very adult-centric world where we think everything happens through the eyes of an adult. Just to echo Heidi here, as, as you put it in your first question uh, or comment, youth as a age and a category of analysis, youth as an experience, youthfulness as sort of a state of mind, allows you to uh, work around some of these disciplinary silos that we often fit ourselves into as historians or across uh, the broader social sciences and humanities. And then also, generally speaking, what I'm so interested in terms of young people uh, in particular is this precarious position between empowerment and control. Um, youth activism is sort of an empowering activity for young people in my research in, in Lebanon uh, in, in the 20s to 50s but also as, as a site for control by adults. So we still are many cases, and we, I think we have to be clear about this, talking about adults in relationship to uh, children and young people. I thought that just to sort of situate our listeners in the field, we might ask a sort of broader question about sort of what is the, the development of the field, if you can briefly summarize for our, our listeners. 
Um, well, over the course of the last century, um, the studies of the history of the Middle East have expanded from being very narrow and focusing on political and diplomatic history to including more diverse perspectives and aspects of history and taking into consideration aspects of power. From that, we've seen histories emerge that go beyond the modern elites to adding women, to adding um, non-elites like slaves or enslaved people and peasants and workers. And now increasingly, we're also seeing um, children and youth being included as actors. That, that comes from this revisioning of the field within um, the history of the Middle East. And also it comes from a lot of growth in Western societies in the history of childhood and youth that we've picked up on. And they've been reaching out, historians of childhood in the West have been reaching out saying, we want to know what's happening in other parts of the world so we can do comparative studies, so we can um, see how children and youth concepts move around the world. And we also don't assume that children in the Middle East have had the exact same history as a European child. So I want to get back to one of these points, this question about age as a category of analysis. And when we use this language, we're, we're thinking about age as something akin to gender, as akin to race, um, you know, other categories of identity or human experience that historians have used as a lens to structure their research. Um, now, it strikes me that childhood is actually sort of unique in a way in that it's a category that disappears, one is only a child for a certain amount of time. And then, you know, a person who is a child, usually pending any kind of disastrous events, becomes an adult. So it's a disappearing category of analysis. And I'm curious if that's something you guys think about in your research and how you sort of deal with the difficulty of or, or the potential of that. I think it's a really interesting question. The question raises the question about sources, too, right, in terms of what sources are accessible to historians when writing about children and youth, right? So the idea that that children, barring some tragic event, right, cease to be a child at a certain, at a certain age, um, and then entering adulthood, which you tend to have a retrospective reflections, right, on um, and it, what it means to be a child, that what that experience was. It raises a lot of questions about similarities with other categories, other variables, whether it be class, whether it be gender, whether it be sexuality, and how there's potentially something unique about childhood and, uh, and youth. And then, and then along those lines, uh, youthfulness and reflecting on your childhood is sort of an ongoing process that continues past that disappearing category that you spoke of. Um, so in a lot of the research that I work on, some of the oral histories that I do with individuals that participate in these um, youth organizations um, still feel youthful. Uh, the word in Arabic being fatuwa. They still feel this vitality of being young. And you can't tell them they're not shabab. You can't tell them that they're not young people. So it's something that also, although it does disappear in some ways, maybe regenerates itself in different ways that I think are equally interesting to think about. It makes me think of two points. One is I think the history of childhood needs to be um, move in the direction of being more interdisciplinary, and we need to see what the legacies are of childhood on adults. Um, so things like memory, things like neuroscience, what is the lasting impact of the childhood experience into adulthood, and how does even the memories of childhood impact um, what people think and do as adults? And the other point that it brings up is that when you say that children is disappearing, that also assumes that we're only studying children for children to understand a child's experience, and that's a big part of it. But we're also, history of childhood and children and youth is also equally important because it speaks to bigger issues that all historians are talking about that don't disappear. 
questions of modernity, questions of colonization don't disappear just because a person is no longer a child. So you can have someone like Beth Barron who writes a book on um, the Islamic Brotherhood in Egypt and looking at the roots and origins of it by using the category of childhood. Yes, those children grew up and moved on, but the fact that their experience as children, as orphans, with Protestant missionaries led to the growth of the Islamic Brotherhood is an important point that goes beyond the category of children. And it's something that in modern times, many people, including in the Middle East, have agreed on, which is that your childhood actually shapes who you later become. So mm-hmm. there's also a history to that idea. Exactly. Um, but that is the, the sea we swim in, in a way. I mean, mm-hmm. I think we still think in this way. So the other part of the title of our conversation today was about the history of the modern Middle East. And so I wanted to ask the three of you a sort of category question, which is the question of of how universal is the category of childhood? Can we assume that everybody always had a childhood in the way that we now understand it? And in particular, can we assume that what we now in sitting in here in San Antonio in the 21st century consider childhood is applicable to the Middle East in different parts of the 19th and 20th centuries? I think that the field of the history of of childhood has been grappling with this question um, of ethnocentrism. And the origins of the field of the history of childhood were very ethnocentric. Um, Philippe Arias published the first work on history of childhood, which was groundbreaking. But he said that medieval times, there was no childhood. Because when he looked at medieval times, he didn't see something that looked like his childhood that he was familiar with. But instead, subsequent scholars said, no, just because it didn't look like what you see doesn't mean they didn't have it. It's a social construct, um, just like gender, just like race. And that makes us realize that uh, we have to always be vigilant not to apply our current perspectives and current ideas about childhood to the past. But I can say that childhood as a physical period in time, biologically, it does exist everywhere, but it's the meaning we attribute to it that varies over time and place. And also, there are quite a lot of similarities, too, even when cultures seem like they're very different. And it raises some interesting parallels to discussions about sexuality, right, in terms of language. Okay, the fact that you have homoerotic relations with two men or two women, but they don't actively refer to themselves as homosexual. As historians studying a pre-modern era, can we use that language when describing acts, when describing emotions, right? And if we do use a language, you know, what are we obfuscating? Are there nuances in terms of class, in terms of region, in terms of, you know, not to essentialize, but religion, ethnicity, that the category potentially erases um, and, and obfuscates. So basically saying that um, at that point, uh, the concept of childhood has less u- utility? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm actively thinking about this right now. Um, I mean, and it's interesting to think about the historiography of, I mean, if we can say a field or we can say a burgeoning literature, the vast majority of that literature in the Middle East is confined, I would say, to the modern period. And so what does that say, right? That, that we actively see the construction of the notion of childhood and youth during this time period, mm-hmm. inextricably connected to the army, inextricably connected to, to modern state building projects, education, which is very different in the, in the pre-modern. And I, I don't want to say that it's definitively not there, but it's interesting when you think about 
who are the major contributors to to these to these conversations? Actually, in my research on childhood in early twentieth century Egypt, I looked at this. I look at this exact moment when this concept of childhood as we know it today becomes part of the common vocabulary, and when it does, it doesn't mean that people in Egypt completely replicated or copied what was going on in, the, in Europe at all. They actually draw on their own sources and their own heritage, especially the um, history of Adab literature, to see concepts of, of childhood in the West that they already had and that they just want to revisit and go back to or refine. Thank you for bringing up that there is a, there is an institutional context for the emergence of something um, that we now call childhood. There's a class context. So I'm wondering if the three of you could talk a little bit about the Middle East in particular and about the context that you work on. What are some of the institutions or the practices? Um, I'm thinking, Murat, you, you raised the army. So the question of conscription, can you be conscripted if you're a child? The modern school obviously is a defining um, institutional context for a kind of prolonged notion of childhood and youth, right? You go to school, you don't go to the field to help out and become you know, part of the family business. I'm wondering if you could each um, expand a little bit on what are the, the actual historical context for the emergence of either a concept or an experience of childhood. I'm thinking about the particular context of colonial Egypt and the concept of childhood uh, as we know it today. Different nationalists or political elites started traveling to Europe and encountering um, Western concepts. And some of the new ones were that of childhood. And they thought to themselves, well, maybe this is a way we can become strong enough. If we adopt these ways of Europe, we can become strong enough to throw off our occupier and take care of ourselves. And so how can we change and reform childhood? And that means changing our um, ways of that they spend their time. That means increasing the amount of intervention of the state and the government in the lives of a child and the child's world no longer being simply about the mother and father and the kin, but to being about outsiders, outside experts coming in and telling you how to raise your child. So that's really important because what you're talking about is the emergence of childhood as an object of knowledge and of scientific expertise in colonial Egypt. Yeah, and just to dovetail off of what Heidi was speaking to there, working on youth clubs and uh, political organizations with youth bents in Lebanon in the mid-20th century, they definitely started and began as sort of a site of anti-colonial activism uh, against the French in the, in the context of Lebanon. Uh, and we're seen actually as independence actors forging the independence of Lebanon against the sort of French colonial system. But at the same time, as a sort of organization and institution that is building, uh, they're also attempting, as a, as adults or, or young men and women, uh, trying to harness youth power uh, and in youth energy, better put. This goes to what you were saying in terms of uh, when the state intervenes into the lives of young people, is that when youth or childhood becomes a category of analysis? And I think it's, it's, it's an interesting question to think through. I'd like to say two things. One is um, the state plays a central role in this process, right? The state historically is less, prior to the 19th century, is not interested in educating and raising children. This is, there's a shift taking place in the 19th century that's inextricably connected to centralizing uh, reforms, right? The Ottoman Empire and the Qajar state attempting to push back and attempting to remain an incredibly competitive political um, entity. And obviously, schools are central to this state project of, of, of creating a new cadre of, of, of men and increasingly women 
but uh, initially men, and and doing so during a time period, that period of childhood and, and youth. So the state plays a central role in this process during this mid to late 19th century moment. What I also find interesting in, in bringing together um, Heidi and Dylan's points is that, you know, in a lot of the literature has has explored, and rightfully so, the role of education in, in the formation of a distinct category of, of childhood. But what's also interesting is that with the ways in which citizens also contribute to this process, right, through voluntary associations, this idea that there's a time period outside of school, empty time, leisure time, during which young people need to be actively engaged in productive, moral activities. And hence, you then have this kind of uh, market of, uh, of association that mushrooms throughout the Middle East, in which you have not the state necessarily, and not to kind of assume this kind of rigid division, but you're seeing non-state actors also actively contributing to the formation of a notion of childhood and, and, and youth. Um, that just makes me think of two things. Uh, one, it's not just the institution of the state that's changing childhood. It's also happening tangentially, along with changing notions of class and with gender. They go hand in hand. You can't have, for example, uh, an affinity or like an upper middle class lifestyle unless you suddenly have children who are in the Boy Scouts and children who can read, children that can use a telescope. And you find um, sources of this, children's magazines being published, showing and training children how to be this modern uh, middle class child. And then also the other thing it made me think of is that the actual experiences of children, all this going on around them. Sometimes we forget about the children themselves and how they experience it. And some of these times this could be really exciting, all these changes but also very scary for them. And you can find in the sources like autobiographies of childhood, children cowering in fear when the immunization, the state comes to do their immunizations. Um, or you find little girls learn, yearning to go to these new state schools for, for girls, but their parents not wanting it. Mm -hmm. Childhood is also a kind of site of potentially of fear and, and trauma in actual lived experience. So this brings us to a question that I know all three of you have thought a lot about, which is this question about how do you, to what extent is it possible to actually access the experiences of actual children? And there are also, we've mentioned a lot of the kind of fascinating sources that exist for the history of how people thought about children. So I wondered if you could each sort of think through with us or mention to us, what are some of the richest or most exciting sources that you find to study the history either of children themselves um, or of the way ideas about children developed? Well, the source I'll speak about is always layered uh, in the context of Lebanon that had a diverse, rich uh, print culture. All the organizations I work with had their own newspapers. And hence these newspapers, uh, they create column space for young people to write in, talk about their issues, speak about their uh, like or interest in an organization. But that is often where the organization intercedes, if you will. So it's hard to read between the lines there, but it is there in certain sentences, in certain um, poems, for example, or, or, or literary work where you see this this idea of the the excitement of being young, as I think was, was mentioned earlier, but always there's the specter of the organization or the state or other outside forces that we can speak of, um, existential or otherwise, that are always sort of shaping that in different ways. Children are everywhere in the sources. You have to look for them and be willing to be open-minded and not be adult-centric. I revisited 
intellectual literature that had been written about over and over and again, Al-Tatawi, Al-Afghani, and nobody had thought they were talking about children. And when you go back and look, they have a lot to do with children. So even in the canonical works of, yeah. you know, the, the sort of great men of the history of the Middle East, indeed, you find a lot of stuff I mean, about you, children. You can also do um, a whole body of um, sources that were developed just for children, like the children's press, children's literature. And one source that I find very helpful is um, increasingly our oral histories. And that's something that I'm exploring now in the context of Palestine, where you actually have people remember and think about their childhood and, and reflect back and do a sort of engagement with you about what that all means. One little point there, or just the fact that these great men, if you will, or great women within the, you know, the sort of narrative history of the modern Middle East, being young as they're writing. Um, however that youthfulness is defined, whether it's age, whether it's what stage of life they are, are they married, do they have kids, or they they own a home, whatever it may be, but um, the fact that they were young, and they're, they're, while they're, we sort of essentialize their intellectual ideas later as sort of concrete, maybe unfolding, but, you know, concrete, um, the fact that perhaps the world around them seemed very uh, evolving and, and different as they were entering these different stages of life. A great conversation, a great set of questions. Um, and I'll, I'll start by saying this, Heidi's point about not being adult-centered or adult-centric is, 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 is a really interesting point because, I mean, I think about, I think about education, Right, and some of the the seminal contributions to this literature have been on on education, and there are a couple of ways in which people can study education. Right, you can readily available are, are textbooks, and that tells a lot about state views. Right, potentially administrators, uh, instructors. There's a discursive construction at play. Um, the question is, what other sources do we have? Right, and there are sources. Something that I that I find fascinating I've, I've been actively thinking about this is, is is assignments and it's they're not the most accessible for different i mean late 19th early 20th century maybe they're less accessible but i've found for example children's sketches of of soccer and i i was fascinated by this okay so what does this say does this say that children are encouraged to to draw about soccer in school is there a free drawing session in which that child opted to to draw about Soccer. So, so what does that assignment tell us about interests, about taste? It's multi-layered. I mean, if you think about photograph albums, there's new, really exciting work by, for example, Lucy Rizova on Egyptian youth photo albums, right? And these are actual products of children, but more specifically, youth. And what that says about a, a specific time period, and not people who are older, but people that actually consider themselves youth are producing something to speak to that specific time period in their lives. It strikes me that a lot of the, the issues that the three of you are raising about sources are actually issues that are true of most historical sources. And we are only perhaps more skeptical of sources that have to do with children and involve children's writers. You know, these questions about the layers about to what extent is a document that's written after the fact, perhaps many years after the fact, representative of, of a lived experience. I mean, these are actually questions that are true for most kinds of historical sources. And why is it that when children are the ones who are at stake, um, these questions seem to loom much larger in a way? We're going to take a quick music break, and we'll be back to you in a few minutes with more on the history of children and youth in the modern Middle East.
Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson. I'm here today with a group of wonderful scholars talking about the history of children and youth in the modern Middle East. So we've talked a little bit about why this field is important, and we've touched on issues about source material and about methodological and epistemological questions that are raised by the history of children and youth. Now, I, since I have three of you in the room, I want to ask you, what are the kind of major debates in the field? What are the things that people disagree about? Two big debates that I can think of. One starting is the agency versus structure. Can you just explain for our listeners, like, what do you mean when you say agency versus structure? Yeah, young people as drivers of their own destiny versus uh, products of adult politics, institutions, and, and whatnot. And I think it's, it's gray and it's in between, but I would say scholars go in different directions. Um, one answer to that makes us feel warm and rosy, young people being empowered, taking their own destiny, their lives, and the other one seems quite depressing. Uh, adults intervening to control young people and uh, the uh, the vitality they can have. So even this very concept of agency is um, debated among historians. There are increasingly historians of child and youth who are asking, is agency, the concept of age, agency, a satisfactory methodological concept for us? Because it assumes uh, a liberal enlightenment thinking of the rational, fundamentally free uh, individual who can pursue and drive and make their own life. Does that apply? Or would it be more useful, as some historians like Stephanie Olson are saying, to instead look at the concept of emotions and interactions and confrontations with the past and how children and youth emotionally form and their formations, as opposed to putting this label of agency on them? This These debates and discussions, though, do sound like they're, not to say that they're, they don't emerge within Middle Eastern studies, but I wonder if we can kind of reflect on whether these debates are external to the field, mm -hmm. and if they are, what does that say about the state of the literature on childhood and, and youth in Middle Eastern studies? So do we feel like we're plugged into these debates and discussions in, in the broader field? I think they're in the process of forming right now, which is is great for great for us as as scholars of children and youth. Um, but one work comes to mind, which definitely deals with these questions. Uh, Nazam Maksudian's uh, work on destitute children in the late Ottoman Empire, which really attempts to balance these analytical categories of structure and agency as it relates to the orphanage and the Ottoman state, but also the fact that uh, in in some cases of children petitioning themselves or getting themselves out of sticky situations, if you will, and how um, we can use those types of sources, which we haven't really talked about yet, sort of petitions where young people sort of push back against the state. That might be a place for maybe not uh, maybe not agency per se, but resistance to um, the structures that are attempting to control these energies. I think maybe one debate within Middle East scholars, it's a bit of an unspoken debate, and that is that children matter or don't matter to the past, and if so, which children matter? Just look at the work that has or has not been published on the history of children and youth, and you get your answer to where the majority of people stand in this debate. Hmm. So the way we've been talking here today is as if childhood is entirely um, a category that it's socially constructed. It's the product of particular times and places, particular institutional contexts. But we're probably the minority of people in the city of San Antonio or the United States who think in this way. I think most people think of childhood as actually a kind of biological period of certain kinds of physiological developments and certainly neurological developments 
Um, and, you know, we have laws and schooling policies that are based on this idea. So I want to ask you, you know, do you, do you think biology matters? And if so, how? Absolutely. Other scholars of um, childhood globally, Peter Stearns, for example, uh, and his, his, his reader on um, the history of global childhood, talks about these things that are biologically constant across different cultures, um, whether it is the practice of swaddling, perhaps, or the, the practice of breastfeeding, or and obviously in different historical time periods, this might be chosen or done in different ways, but um, that there are certain ways that um, health outcomes are communicated that definitely are um, are very, very important to understanding this phenomenon. I, I taught in the past a course on the history of childhood and youth, and, and we start off with this question of nature and nurture. And I had my students that are history majors and education majors read works uh, from the biological side, and they, they were lost. And, and, and um, the reason they were lost is we do not have, as, as social scientists, as scholars of the humanities, the tools to often interpret this research almost. Like, it was very, very difficult. We said at the end, yeah, we think it matters, but we don't know how to read this stuff, and they don't know how to read our stuff. So I would definitely hope that we can start communicating with uh, each other more so. Bodies matter. The body you live in, the body you exist in matters at any time and place, whether it's a developing body, whether it's an aging body, whether it's a pregnant body, it's going to affect how you feel and experience the world around you. So the question of biology, um, you know, it just strikes me that if I had asked that question about gender and not about age, we would be having a very different conversation potentially. Um, so I'm wondering, what is the relationship between the history of children and youth and the history of women, gender, and sexuality? Um, these are two fields that are often lumped together. And I'm curious to hear you know, what you think that the history of, of children and youth can offer to the field of the history of women and gender sexuality, or, or should they be um, pursued you know, as separate lines of inquiry? I was just going to say that I appreciate that you separated um, women and children and didn't make it one word. I mean, there's something to be said, though, about um, the historical development of the literature, right, and how women's studies emerges out of, of, out of, out of social approaches to uh, the study of the past, right? Um, there's an attempt to write history from, from below, unexplored and under-listened voices. So I think a lot of the questions that inform people's research, why do people explore and want to write a, a history of childhood or youth, reflect their interest in exploring um, voices that have not been necessarily centered to, to kind of recenter peripheral and marginal voices. And, you know, I mean, it raises fascinating questions about, okay, you know, okay, we talk about a, a category of childhood and youth, but obviously these are, these are also highly gendered, right? Um, and what is, um, how does gender contribute to illuminating new insights about childhood and also vice versa, right? How does the experience of, of, of a young woman and a young boy, social variables, class, uh, region, how does, it, how does that illuminate what it means to be a young girl and a young boy? Marsha Enhorn's work on uh, emergent masculinities comes to, to mind. This period where there are biological changes uh, occurring, you are not fixed in your social situation as a young person. How is gender identity particularly fluid during that time period? It's not to say that it gets entirely fixed later, depending on where we're talking about, but uh, not only emergent gender identities uh, as it relates to changing phases of life, but also in that moment of childhood and youth, uh, how is it particularly interesting to grasp onto and hold gender and, and think about um, what that means for young people? 
I think adding children to the mix of um, gender also helps us see that all women's experiences are not the same and that women have a different experience than girls. And in that same vein, we know that then girls are actively changing and making history just as much as women are, but they're not often given their credit. Well, in my research, when you look at the early 20th century, we see little girls sneaking off, finding ways to get to school um, or finding ways to defy their, their fathers and contribute to nation building. So I want to finish up our conversation here by maybe um, turning to the kind of broader questions of the present in a way, which is to ask, what if we lived in a world where the history of children and youth was actually at the top of everybody's agenda? What would that look like? Well, that would assume that history is at the top of everybody's agenda, which would make a lot of us very pleased. (laughs) Um, But a world that prioritizes the history of children and youth would help to create a world with different priorities in the present moment. We would see a, a world that wanted to know what the impact was of war on the actual lives of human beings. We would want to know about shattered childhoods that it creates. We'd want to know about the impact of disease. We'd want to know about um, the impact of ignorance, being denied education. And it would shape our priorities for today to prioritize and put children at the center of our decision-making and of our decision-making about going to war, about how we allocate finances, about how we um, burn gasoline. Burn gasoline. I think we would really interpret events differently. Thinking of the context of, say, the Arab uprisings, Arab Spring, whatever you want to call it, if the history of childhood and youth is is more central here, uh, then we are, are are speaking about what did it mean uh, in that context uh, for obviously cross-generational groups and whatnot, but centered on young people and youth issues, youth unemployment, youth demographic issues that we're seeing in the Middle East uh, would, would be central to the interpretation of those events. And we might not be talking as much about authoritarianism or control, and we might be actually listening more to, to these young people, not, and not just uh, their demands, but what got them to there. A lot of times people think, oh, we study the history of childhood because we care about the future, and that's going to make us have a much better world in the future. And yes, that could very well be true. But we care about children because they're children, because they're human beings, because they're alive, and they have experiences that often get uh, marginalized and not paid attention to because people think that they're not important. Two points, and it's kind of in, in response to Tilton's point about the um, Arab uprisings. And there's there, there, there are really two issues that I think are, are one is a an internal, and not to create these neat divisions of internal and external, but the idea of people within the region identifying youth as a collective experience as the future of the next generation, right? But there's also this interesting way in which in, in Western media, world of punditry, this idea that, that the youth of the Middle East have promise because they inherently are going to be, they would gravitate to the West, they're going to be more secular, they're going to be more accepting of Western values, norms, right? And there's so this interesting way that we can see it implicitly in scholarship, also, again, in, in, in pop culture and punditry, in which youth means Western, youth means accepting of American policies. But don't you think we have the same impulse with youth anywhere? I mean, in the way that perhaps what you're pointing out is that the category of youth often becomes the repository for the dreams of their fathers. 
Well, well, to bring it more locally in the context of uh, American youth activism, I think this is something really interesting in the wake of the uh, school shooting in Florida in the spring uh, in terms of, yes, there's this point of young people dying in schools and this should not happen and that we should have a better future where this doesn't exist. But young people are leading the discussion and not as more, I think you brought up there greatly, perhaps not as a collective. It's not presuming uh, an outcome, but just really focusing on uh, on those moments, multiple voices, uh, as opposed to pre-assuming, uh, as you brought up, uh, what is good for the future is good for the West or good for, uh, you know, certain forms of legislation or laws. Uh, but, but just listen. I was just going to add that, unfortunately, I don't think that children in the Middle East often get this privilege and children and youth of being viewed like this by the West, that actually people in the West often associate youth not with promise and, and prosperity and change, but instead with violence and terrorism and a threat to the world. So this has been a great conversation about the different ways that people look at children and childhood, not just in the Middle East or as historians, but actually it seems like in broader terms. Um, the three of you are part of an organization that fosters conversations like the one we've had today. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Okay, we have this organization called AMC, the Association of Middle East Children and Youth Studies, and that emerged um, just in the last year or two, and it's a group of scholars that have come together from multiple disciplines who want to give more attention to the academic study of children and youth in the Middle East and find ways to promote and research and support research uh, on that. And we'll put the website on our bibliography for our listeners who want to find out more about AMC's. So I just want to thank you all so much for coming on the podcast. We've had an extremely wide-ranging conversation today. Um, we've talked about the institutional history of childhood. We've talked about some of the methodological and epistemological questions that the history of childhood and youth raises for historians more broadly. Um, we've talked about what might be particular to children in the region we now call the Middle East. Um, we've raised questions about nature and nurture, about structure and agency, um, and about women and gender. So I want to thank you all so much for being on the podcast. And for our listeners, we will post a bibliography at our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com, that will include many of the works that we've mentioned here today. Until next time, take care. <laughs> Aslan ya